Welcome back to Everything is Public Health. I'm MJ. And I'm Cass. So once in a while, thanks to the sinister algorithm of YouTube and various social media platforms. <laughs> wow, you're just like going right into it. Okay. Yes, all right. because I was not prepared for that. Before we say anything, I just want to tell the listeners right now, all of this will be spicy. <laughs> just, so just get ready. It's hard to parse out spiciness when we talk about something political. So all of this is going to be spicy. Just get your sour cream ready. Well, it's hard. Yeah. When we're talking about democracy, it can be challenging to keep it. Cool. cool, right? So yeah. anyway, thanks to the sinister algorithm of YouTube and social media, I get some weird propaganda post sometimes just like out of nowhere, despite me telling YouTube and those social media platform that I don't want to see this. But, you know, I get some propaganda posts sometimes. And a few weeks ago, I got my very first Chinese propaganda post coming across my feed, which is a very interesting experience because you don't get a lot of those. I tried my very best to find the original post that I saw on Instagram, but I couldn't. So the main gist of the post was this, right? And this, by the way, was during not peak COVID, but like definitely in the midst of COVID. Well, if you, this was a few weeks ago. It was a repost. So the original post oh, was... Oh, yeah. oh, got it, got it. Okay. So something like the gist was uh, Western countries couldn't handle COVID. Only socialist countries like China handled it well, and countries should all look towards China for how a government should be. And before I say anything, first impression. What do you think? Uh, well, first of all, I am having to respond to your use of social media because I know you don't <laughs> use it often. No. Nope. But I find it very weird that you're seeing these things on YouTube because like I go out to YouTube with a like a purpose to watch a particular thing and then right. I go away. But I know other people this and I'm not reflecting on you per se, but I know other people who just like put on some thing and like it just scrolls through all these videos. And anyway, this was not on YouTube. This was on Instagram, which is the only social media platform I have. But I do spend a lot of time on YouTube and sometimes I get recommended things that I'm just like, no, absolutely not. Yeah. Things come up on my I'm on Instagram for cooking and cute animals. Same, same. People may have heard me talk about before. So I, I immediately like report things that yeah. don't jive with my happy food and animal stuff. Same, because I don't want to see it. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, what do you think? My first reaction, the U.S. didn't do a very no. good job handling COVID. Sure. So there's that. Other countries, I think, probably did a better job. And I would not necessarily have lifted up China as an example right. of what governments should be because yeah. they are very... <laughs> repressive they've locked down on free speech mm -hmm. um there are state controlled media yeah. and other pieces and so i wouldn't maybe not take that as a yay let's all make our governments like china be yeah we need to do some work in the u.s but i would think that a democracy and a free press are better for our country yeah this is exactly what i thought at, at first like this is very clearly i don't know if this is like stake sanctioned propaganda but in effect that's what it is it is it is chinese propaganda so a few things while the u.s did a terrible job there are definitely some western countries that did an okay job right you know, maybe not like perfect but germany and new zealand in the beginning stages they did pretty well well new zealand is an island so new zealand that true? You know, they, they get an extra pass <laughs> natural barrier called the ocean <laughs> but i think also you know the early response in many places i think was hindered by a lack of willingness to share information yeah. which i think is another issue related to the government a lot of suppression of information yes. where had there been open dialogue and communication, then maybe folks would have had a different response in certain places. Exactly. So I don't know if people remember this, but in the early stages of the pandemic, 
China was doing everything in their power to keep this under wrap. Yeah, it was a whistleblower, right? Yeah. And then he eventually died, unfortunately, of COVID. Yeah. Dr. Li Wenliang. And he was trying to get people's attention that, hey, this was a serious thing. And China did everything in their power to like keep that under wrap. So yeah, I mean, that's one of the examples of what a authoritarian government like China could do and does do. And there's a high suspicion of underreporting from China. So there was a time where they reported 8,000 deaths, but Hmm, the crematorium are stockpiling tens of thousands of urns. Hmm, what are those urns for, China? <laughs> right? And a lot of propaganda, which I'm not going to go through, but China did a lot of like state press control for maintaining their image and also internally and, and externally. NPR did a great story about how the early stages of the pandemic was in China, and it was awful. Uh, people were denied dialysis. They were told to stay home despite needing dialysis, which, you know, I don't, I don't, you could die from not having dialysis. That's like, that's like a very real thing. Absolutely. Other things like harsh punishment or rule breakers. So there's uh, several clips going viral and quick, was quickly taken down by China state media of people in hazmat suits or not hazmat suits. No, you know, those like contamination suits, like that medical PPE. Yeah. The white ones. People wearing those suits, like using sledgehammers, breaking into people's houses to like drag them out for testing. <laughs> That's pretty intense. I mean, that's what an authoritarian government can do and does do uh, when they want to get something done. And in the beginning stages, people were praising the zero COVID approach. But now it's starting to seem like draconian, like even to public health advocates and public health people, it's starting to seem like a little extreme. I think there's a balance and I'm, I'm not advocating for taking a willy nilly approach to COVID in any way. Of but, course, look what we did. <laughs> but right. you need to have... People having access to resources, whether that's food, medical care, a whole range of things that are essential for our ability to survive as humans. And so I think you have to accept, for better or for worse, a certain amount of risk that COVID might spread in order for people to seek care for dialysis, for other issues, and sort of locking people down completely and not letting folks have access to those other things have other public health implications like, yeah, okay, maybe you've controlled the spread of COVID, but now you have a bunch of people dying from end stage renal disease or these other issues where people couldn't, yeah, couldn't get access to services or resources. Yeah. And there was a case where there was this really poor guy who wanted to visit his family and he was prepared to do like the two week quarantine and stuff. And then an outbreak happened and he is, I, I believe, still stuck in China. and It's been four months. Also, general privacy, human rights and free speech issues in China that I'm not going to get into. So maybe, you know, saying that China is a government that people should, you know, model is is propaganda. And that's what it is. In China's defense, most countries would talk about themselves in a more positive light than other countries might. So I don't think it's sort of unique to China to do national propaganda, but I think they have the added element of suppressing public media and free speech that can make it seem like their propaganda may be more accurate than it might otherwise appear if there was a different status of the media. Yeah, of course. Lots of issues. And you're probably wondering why we're talking about this and why this was an inspiration for today's episode. Well, no, what the spicy part is already coming. So in public health, we frequently talk about governmental actions and policies as intervention, right? We sometimes talk about how what to do public health, you sort of need swift and coordinated actions. A lot of those actions being from 
the government. So some examples might be, well, COVID is the obvious one right now, but thinking about food safety. So when there is an outbreak of oh, salmonella right. yeah. in lettuce or spinach or those kinds of things, if there is a contamination in water, putting aside for a moment uh, Flint, <laughs> Michigan and the lead issues, yeah. but other kinds of water issues when the there's a severe storm and the power goes out and FEMA needs to respond to repair the electrical grid or whatever it might be. There are lots of instances where something has happened and the government acts to leverage resources, coordinate response, etc. to help the people that are impacted or might be impacted in the case of like a foodborne illness outbreak. Yeah, a lot of public health is about policies and governmental actions. So sometimes it can appear that democracy can get in the way of those policy or governmental solutions. So we talk about Senate deadlocks. We talk about particular administration just doesn't want to do anything. We talk about things not getting out of committee. Correct. To even get to a vote. So sometimes it may falsely seem that having an authoritarian government may be, quote unquote, more suited from a public health perspective, but that is not the case. The rest of this episode will be dedicated to why democracy, the concept, is important to public health and why, if you are a legitimate public health person, you would be advocating for democracy rather than a more authoritarian approach. I don't know that I love your word choice on legitimate public health person. Uh I think maybe, you know, somebody who is supportive of the principles of public health you would want there to be more freedoms for the individuals who are in a particular country or place than an authoritarian regime may offer. Yeah, if you're supportive of the principle of public health, you see the importance of why democracy is critical. Then that's what we're going to be talking about today and why voting is public health. For folks who might not be aware, although you're probably being bombarded with election uh materials, emails, calls, whatever. Midterm elections are happening this year. So in many places, the primaries are happening. Election day is coming up, November 6th. So, you know, it's really important. The direction of our nation is going to be determined by these elections. And as we've talked about before, many folks vote in the presidential election, but they don't always vote in the midterm and then people don't vote in local elections. And so a very small number of folks are deciding who is going to be making decisions for our cities, states, mm-hmm. counties even, as well as our country. So it's important that we exercise our civic duty and vote. And vote. And we talked about this many times in past episodes of just how important voting is. In fact, after many episodes, when we talk about solutions, we bring up voting because voting is such an integral part of the democratic process, right? And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Well, even throwing back to the episode we just had on the census and the allocation of funds based on census data, who we elect into office isn't just about who then is perhaps writing legislation. Who we vote into office also determines who is running agencies, who gets appointed to be a judge or other kinds of things. We also elect attorneys general or district attorneys or state's attorneys in some areas, depending on where you live, what they're called, judges, sheriffs, like Our elections are really important for not just legislation and sort of rules, but also how we interact just generally. Yeah, for sure. And voting is important and democracy as a concept 
is important. So we talked about this, but we haven't really discussed at length why democracy, the concept, is important to public health. Uh, we just sort of assumed it. But, you know, so in today in this episode, we will discuss it at length and sort of break it down why democracy is an integral part of public health. First, a disclaimer, neither of us are political scientists or philosophers. So I try to read Technically, up- I have a doctor of philosophy. But- <laughs> That's true. <laughs> so, okay, maybe just one of us is a philosopher. Well, I, I'm not a philosopher. I was just I I was just uh, poised with that joke, but uh, but so yeah, neither of us are deep into this field, and so I tried to read up on some research and papers regarding the, this topic prior to today, and boy, it's so dense. There's so much like stuff that you can get into about like the concept and the workings of a democracy and political science gets, you know, very tough. So we'll keep things relatively general. Well, and then there's the issue about a democratic republic versus a democracy versus a republic. And so many things. You know, technically, we are a democratic republic. We are not a true democracy, but that's okay. We won't get into that. Well, so we'll just talk more about democracy, the concept more generally and why that's important to public health. So how would you describe the importance of democracy to public health before I get into like my points? What do you think? Um, well, I think democracy is really important for public health because how we respond to public health issues is determined by who we have elected and who we have making decisions. And if we are in a democratic or sort of a country that is embracing democratic notions, we think that there should be representation for folks. They should have a voice. There should be some agency and autonomy to decide how you are yeah. behaving. And it's not just the central federal government making choices about how we respond to something. You know, we talk about states being the laboratory of democracy. States are very heterogeneous. Even within a state, there are a lot of differences. So localities and cities are very heterogeneous. And being in a democracy allows different jurisdictions to, for better or for worse, decide <laughs> Florida, Texas, yeah. what <laughs> kinds of responses might be best for their their constituents. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I'll get to the spicy part later. So let's just, I want to hit this point first, which is you brought it up, which is representation matters, right? And the whole thing about public health is that it is about the health of everyone. And how do you hear from everyone? Well, you need them to be represented in some way in the decision making process, whether that's by electing people or in Athens, a direct democracy, more or less. I mean, slaves couldn't vote, right? But in Athens, in ancient Greece. Uh, sorry, when I say Athens, I mean like ancient Athens, not like Athens of today. <laughs> but so maybe just stick with ancient Greece for clarity. Ancient Greece, but yeah, representation matters, and you know, like public health, everyone counts, right? We it wouldn't be public health. Everyone should count. Everyone should count, right? So that's the spicy part that we'll get into. So <laughs> I mean, we talked about this before in the environmental racism episode, which is we could very easily make one neighborhood the healthiest neighborhood there could possibly be at the expense of other neighborhoods, but. That is not the point, right? The point is that... That is the antithesis of public health. Yeah. So here's the spicy part. So, you know, spice warning. Is this an MJ's hot take? We haven't had one of those in a while. It is a hot take. So a lot of issues that we're seeing in our democracy is because we are not doing democracy. Does that make sense? Like a lot of issues that we have is because we're straying away from the democratic concept. So we are moving away from some of the core elements and functions of a democracy by doing things like voter suppression, like making it harder for people to register or access, you know, limiting hours, all those things that fall into the voter suppression bucket. Yeah. 
And I should point out not just uniform voter suppression, it is selective voter suppression, which is I think is the bigger issue. They are they, I'll let you figure out what that pronoun refers to, but they are figuring out ways to make certain neighborhoods less weighted in the voting process by doing all those things that we will surely talk about in a whole separate episode because voter suppression is a huge topic. But we're straying away from democracy, things that are a little bit more abstract. For example, the Supreme Court right now, nine people gets to decide all women's fate, essentially. Yes, but to be fair, if Congress could get their heads out of their rear ends and pass legislation that would protect the health care for women, this would not be an issue. That inaction has put it into the hands of nine people, even between now and the issuance of the decision that could potentially strike down Roe v. Wade. Congress could act if this was really important to more people, as it should be. Like if we could put aside our ideological differences and just recognize that women's health care involves a range of issues, topics, needs and not everyone needs the same things, then we could make the Supreme Court decision a moot point, which I love to say. It is a good word. I don't know why. I just like, I just love that. But we don't, we haven't done that. And I don't know that we will, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm, I just, my, my brain, like it's, it's got like a cramp in it, my brain, because sometimes I just can't wrap my mind around that. I'm always frustrated by the concept of separation of church and state which, you know, says, hey, church, the state can't tell you how to worship, where to worship, all these things. You know, you can you can do your thing. And we give a lot of latitude to religious ideology, but except in very limited circumstances, we don't see the opposite. So you can't require kids to pray in school. There are some other things where we have pushed back and kept the church out of the state. But when it comes to some of these moral, quote unquote, moral topics, then we see religious ideology coming in all over the place and abortion being one in particular. It's a concept that I think needs to be enforced more, but unfortunately, we see this infringement between the church and the state. And how do we get on this? Well, we talk about... Yeah, sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. We talk about how like there's a lot of issues with American democracy. My hot take is that those issues that we have is not because of democracy. It's because we have strayed away from the democratic principle, which is representation matters. The action of the government should reflect the will of the people. For example, most people, most Americans support abortions. Most gun owners support gun... Gun policy. Yeah, there we go. I was like, what word was I looking for? But the will of the people is not being reflected by governmental action. And that is not a fault of the democratic concept. That is more that we have strayed away from the democratic process. That's why we're having those issues. Yeah. And that's that's the point I was trying to make. And another thing that I want to emphasize before we move on is that why is democratic process important is because dissent is important. Like we talk a lot about like, oh my God, like these people are you know, anti-vaccination, anti-mask and whatever. And then sometimes we forget that dissent is healthy. And even though we hear dissent that we don't like, imagine a place where there is no dissent. Imagine a place that where the government can just be like, actually, we're going to shut all this down. Like bringing back the China example, they have state media. They have essentially control over the internet. They could very easily strike down people's whatever 
a social media account that China uses. I don't know, but they could they could do that. They could just like uh, you, you no longer have an account. And that's scary. I'm really glad you raised that point because we've gotten to a place in our country and I this is across the board. This is not necessarily one group or political ideology over the other. I think this is a, a pretty broad and pervasive issue, which is that if somebody disagrees with you, we assign to them some fundamental flaw as a human. It used to be even not that long ago. I was going to say 20 years ago, but when I say 20 years ago, I mean the 90s, not the 2000s. So 30 years ago, I remember as a kid and a young teenager hearing people have regular debates and disagree and people could agree that there was a problem or an issue that needed to be addressed, but maybe disagree on the potential solution, mm. but still respect each other as people, as humans. And we have really gotten away from that. Now we're at a place where if you disagree with me, like we, I cut you out of my life. We can't possibly be together because we don't think exactly the same way, which is terrible and, and alarming on both sides of the aisle. Now, this is in the context of factually accurate information. (laughs) One of the problems (laughs) that we have, we should do a whole episode on misinformation. I recently met a very intelligent woman, Dr. Lisa Singh from George Washington University, who does misinformation research um, on on social media. But when we're thinking about misinformation, we are no longer on an even playing field. So 30 years ago, It was much, much harder to spread propaganda, to spread misinformation, because we didn't have this 24-hour news cycle. We didn't have social media. We didn't have, you know, computers in our pockets where we could be bombarded with misinformation or go out and find information that is sort of confirms our existing bias. But people, I think, were on a much more level playing field. I could be wrong. You could disagree with me. I mean, right now in this moment. But that's my perspective as being somebody who was, you know, generally coherent in the 90s and and thinking about these things. Now, it can be almost impossible to have a conversation with somebody because we have discarded facts. Feelings are the more important thing. What do you think? What do you feel? And sort of what is your opinion more so than what does the evidence say? But if I have a certain set of facts, I'm using air quotes here, (laughs) uh, and this person I'm discussing the issue with has another set of facts, it's almost impossible to have a conversation because we like... You see the other side as insane. Right. The premise of the question is not in alignment. Yeah. We don't even need to bring up a metaphor. We could just be like, for example, uh, your, what do you call it? Your Ballywick? Ballywick? Bailiwick. Bailiwick, which is guns, right? We can say, actually, a lot of Americans support gun policies, like reasonable gun policies. And they could be like, no. And be like, well, yes, we have surveys to show you that a lot of people support gun policies. Yeah. Perception is reality, unfortunately. Unfortunately. And the perceptions in the U.S., People think more people own guns than they actually do. Yeah. And people think that others are less supportive of policy. So there was a really interesting study. I can't remember which team did this research, but there was a really interesting study where they said, what are your perspectives on these policies? And, you know, how much do you favor or oppose these different policies? I think I know this one. And then they said, well, what do you think about other people? What do you think about gun owners? What do they think about these policies? And so somebody who was a gun owner was far more likely to rate that they were in support of these other policies, like they personally supported them, but they said, well, other gun owners don't support them. And that's that misinformation or propaganda that we're hearing that, oh, well, nobody supports this thing because X group doesn't support it. Well, X group is only like 5% of all 
gun owners in the U.S. So like maybe they're not speaking for everybody and gun owners are not a monolith. This is not about gun ownership, but (laughs) it circles back to the point like it's hard to have a functional democracy and reasonable discourse Uh when we are dealing with people. Sometimes people just flat out lie. Sometimes people will spread misinformation. I mean, there's a woman representative that I won't name who just like (laughs) flat out is full of it boggles my mind like how people can believe her <laughs> live with themselves when they are like they must know that this stuff is not true they they must know i i'm not talking about sort of the average person i'm talking about some of these elected officials who are spreading really just crazy conspiracy theories they must know that this stuff is not true. So we got on this because we mentioned dissent is important. And I think another issue I just want to raise really quick is that because of the media and because of social media, whatever, we forget that there's a huge swath of gray in the middle. Oh, huge, huge moderate middle. Like people think about people from the other side and they immediately zoom into the, you know, the cuckoos <laughs> on Cuckoo, the, the really far end where they just seems like they're helpless. So that's why we have this thing. like, oh, you believe in this. That means you must be the most extreme version of this, which is not true, right? So we have responsible gun owners. I want to say a lot of gun owners are responsible gun owners. Yeah, the vast majority of guns in the US, and there are a lot of them, are in the hands of people who can lawfully own them and responsibly use them, and they will never be recovered in a crime. Yeah, but I've met a few people on the left, right? Uh, Friends of mine who think if you're a gun owner, oh, that means you must be like pro NRA and pro, which is not true. There's a whole swath of people in the middle. Gun owners are not a monolith. Yep. Yeah. And when I say dissent is important because we often forget that, yes, there are just people who are just like crazy. Well, the, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. Yeah. And thinking about the media, like not to throw the media under the bus. They have responsibility. But I feel like the media sometimes has a hand in this because they post headlines that are clickbait and they present opposing views that as though they were equally valid, like thinking about climate change for a moment. False equivalence is the term. Right. When you say, well, here's all of this research evidence that this is the problem. Here is a very solid evidence base and this is the issue and we need to do this. And then somebody else goes, oh, well, I think that. And they're presented as if they're on the same thing. Yeah. Or equivalent. And they are not. Yeah. The media needs to do a better job to help us retain and protect our democracy by doing that kind of investigative reporting, pushing back when people make claims based only on opinion. We cannot print opinion as facts or data. It's it's just it's eroding trust in research, which is why I don't like reading op eds. Well, some op eds can be good. This is a personal preference. Yeah, I have read some very very good when an op-ed is written by a researcher or some other scientist those tend to be good because it is here is my evidence-based opinion and i will show you the data so yeah that was a more of a personal thing i personally don't like reading op-eds from either side just to bring us back to the one of the (laughs) points (laughs) at hand it is midterm election season for better or for worse please vote not just vote but be prepared to vote Make sure that you double check that your registration is active. We've talked previously about states actively purging. You know who you are, states. Voter rolls, sending letters to people that appear as though you are affirming your registration, but you're actually unregistering yourself to vote. 
Some states have removed automatic registration when you renew your driver's license. Now you have to opt in. So make sure you're being active and engaged. And then make sure that you're reading up who your candidates are. Make sure that you are aware of the things that matter to you and what the different candidates' perspectives are on those things. So be informed and please critically think and try to base things based on what you care about and also the facts presented. So uh, another thing is that we often think about like, oh, like we have to switch presidents every four or eight years. And we think, oh, like that's so troublesome. That's so inefficient. But think about it. Like if there are no term limits, that's worse because. Well, there's no term limits for senators and representatives. Yeah, that's worse because what if instead of like, I don't want to use like good and bad, but I have to use the term good and bad. Like you figure out what those terms means. But if we don't have term limits, if we don't have this constant cycle and transition to power, you could envision a world where one person or party controls things and they just sit there for 20 years, which is what's happening in a lot of countries without this democratic like transition of power process. And that's not always a good thing to do those things. And I was just thinking about the musical Hamilton. Yes. And so King Edward. George. George. Went back a few monarchs, but okay. (laughs) King George, the character in the, have you seen Hamilton? Of course. Yeah. He heard that George Washington was stepping down and that somebody else, and he's like, oh, are they going to keep on replacing whoever's in charge? Like, yeah, it's, it's, it boggles the mind of some monarchs or authoritarians. Yeah. People, some places that, well, now England has a constitutional monarchy, so that's irrelevant because they have a prime minister. But, you know, it, at the time, it was not common to, to have transitions of power, cycle yeah. out leadership. And I think having a set amount of time that somebody can be in charge is important. And I honestly think we need to be taking a hard look at term limits for senators and representatives because it was never intended to be a career. No. It was intended to be citizens. Yep. representatives and citizen senators, you would go, you would be elected, you would serve and then come home and do your job. And then somebody right. else would go. And I understand that there's institutional knowledge and that there, you know, there can be reasons why. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe you don't want somebody elected only once, but you know, serving 50 years in Congress, like that's maybe not the the best strategy. This brings me to my next point, another hot take. I'm going to talk about censorship. Like this is not the censorship episode, but I'm going to use censorship to illustrate a point. Bear with me. This is a slightly long one, but bear with me. I will try to be concise. Why I am opposed to censorship is not so much that I think every work deserves to be out there and recognized. Like I know that there's some work out there that I personally would love to see not exist, right? There are some very hateful and vitriolic and just racist supremacist text out there or speech out there that I think it'll be best if we just like archive it and put it in a museum. Museum. Maybe there are some things that should just be just like not exist, put into right? the basement. Yeah, for sure. So just bear with me on this. So I'm, I'm bearing with you. I'm opposed to censorship, not because that I think every work deserves to be publicized. It's more that if we were to enforce censorship, we are faced with an impossible challenge of who gets to decide what gets censored and what doesn't. Totally fair. That is an excellent point. Yes, it's impossible to pick who gets to censor things. And if someone can censor things the way everyone wants this year, how do you know that they're going to do the same thing 10 years from now or 20 years from now? There is no way there's there's no way that we can establish a system where we can censor things in a just and moral and fair way. And that is can be applied to democracy, which is there's no way that we can pick the perfect leader forever. Because if he, she, or they, if they're perfect this year, are they going to be perfect in 10 years? Probably not. And we see that with senators who's been a senator for 
there has to be a record. Who holds the record right now? So to be fair, people can evolve. People can um, educate themselves and they can move with the times. They can, right? Are we going to bank on it? So it's not that people are intractable and incapable of change, but that change often requires outside forces. If somebody doesn't have a term limit and can be in office for a very long time, we're hopeful that they would change hopeful, as right. opposed to being able to elect someone new when they hit their term limit who may have perspectives and opinions that are more contemporary. Yeah, we'll do a whole episode about misinformation and the censorship thing, because again, we think free information is very important to public health. And that's just an example of why the transition power is important, because whoever is perfect today may not be perfect 10 years from now. And then society is evolving. And if we decide that we're going to censor things, who gets to decide? And that is an impossible question to answer. Vote. Vote. Register to vote. Make sure that you are registered and everything is up to date so you're prepared for the midterm election. Mm -hmm. I cannot believe. Yeah, here we go. And this is on point. The largest public health professional organization I think in the world, at least here, yeah, at least in the U.S. for sure, is hosting its annual meeting in person in Boston (laughs) on Election Day. (laughs) Knowing how important voting is for public health, knowing how actively certain states are restricting access to early voting, mail-in voting, or all of these things, they why would you do? They scheduled this for Election Day in years past when it came up against Election Day. They just moved it the week before or the week after. As you should. I don't understand why this time around, no one had the forethought to look at when election day was and make sure that the in-person conference did not fall on said Shall day. we name this organization? I mean, I think people can probably figure out what I mean when I say the largest public health professional organization <laughs> in the U.S. Use your imagination. So just to wrap up, anything that subverts the democratic process is not public health. So voter suppression is not public health. Tune into Monday where we'll talk a bit more about what's next for the podcast. Oh, that was a U-turn. Okay. <laughs> we had to U-turn somewhere because this, this has gone off the rails. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Everything is Public Health. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe and spread the word so more people can learn about the awesomeness of public health and the importance of things like voting. New episodes are released every Thursday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Please give us a rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast. It helps the show immensely. Send us questions or comments to everythingispublichealth at gmail.com. Reach out if you think we missed an important perspective or suggest a future episode topic. This will be the last episode of year one or season one. So please tune into the bonus on Monday for more information. Follow us on Twitter at everythingisph or Instagram at everythingispublichealth. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Krifasi. If you want to support the podcast directly, we have a Patreon page. You can find the link in the episode description below. And remember, everything is public health. Everything is public health.